3: to create a listener account, and in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening, so you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat, and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and bestselling
2: author of the book, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. And I am Jeremy Corr host of the New Books in Medicine podcast. American healthcare is broken. Across the United States, there are over 200,000 patient deaths from medical error every year, growing physician burnout, outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry that
3: is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare, with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed from simply the hype.
2: Our goal is that everyone from healthcare consumers to political and medical leaders will find value in the discussions on our show. You may not agree with the different solutions offered, but you will never again conclude that nothing can be done. We hope you will join us. Please subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcast software. For more information, visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com.
0: Hey, everyone. This is Mikey McGovern, and you're listening to New Books in Medicine. I recently spoke with Alexandra minnes Stern, historian of science and medicine at the University of Michigan, about her 2012 book, Telling Genes, published by Johns Hopkins University Press. Telling Genes tells the story of medical genetics in America through the lens of genetic counseling as an emerging profession. By doing so, CERN offers a fresh perspective on a subject that has received substantial treatment by many scholars of science and medicine in the 20th century and beyond. Her account is also remarkable for its accessibility, both in writing and in structure. While introducing substantial new material from archives and oral histories, CERN organizes the book thematically, engaging those new to the subject by framing its development through important tensions, including risk, race, gender, and disability. The result is a book that provides a history from the ground up, giving voice to the practitioners of genetic counseling, while accounting for the vast scholarship on the ethics and politics of human genetics with admirable clarity. In my discussion with Alex. I struggled to place her work within my own understanding of medical genetics research, which led to some interesting comments on how genetic counseling itself came to provide its own kind of genetic knowledge. Genetic counselors, without medical licenses, accounted for patients in different ways than doctors, and their focus on the ethics of genetic information continues to have profound influence over the way we think about it today. Far from being simply a matter of efficacy, The nexus of humanistic concerns one enters into when providing advice based on genetic tests becomes its own kind of therapy in which the biological, psychological, and social are collapsed. Patient-centered care is an important theme throughout the book, which serves to remind us of the amount of work involved in translations between medical research and practice. I really enjoyed my discussion with Alex, and I hope that you will be encouraged to pick up the book for yourself. Hi everyone, this is Mikey McGovern, and welcome to New Books in Medicine. Today I'm speaking with Alex Stern, who is the professor of uh, seemingly a lot of things at the University of Michigan, including obstetrics and gynecology and American culture. Uh, And we'll be talking today about her 2012 book, Telling Genes. So welcome to New Books in Medicine, Alex.
1: Thank you. It's nice to be here.
0: So to get things going, I guess uh, I see this in two parts. One is that you've had, a, you've had a long history of working on the history of medical genetics and eugenics, and I'm interested in how you got into the field and your journey in that subject in the first place, and I'm also interested in the current book and how and why you decided to tell the story of genetic counseling specifically.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Um, it's interesting, you know, the pathways that lead us to our publications and our research and um Suffice it to say that I started off uh, working primarily in Latin American history and Latin American studies, and um, by the time I got to writing a dissertation, I was in the history department at the University of Chicago, and I had arrived at the topic at looking at uh, the history of eugenics, in part because I was very interested in nationalism and race and ideas of citizenship and biopower. Those were kind of the driving concerns. And I had also read Nancy Steffen's The Hour of Eugenics, which for me was a very formative book. And I really liked what she did in terms of she did a three-country analysis of Brazil, Mexico, and Argentina. And I felt that there was more to tell about the Mexico story. And I was also very interested in Away, kind of looking at that story, but from the perspective of the U.S. West. In other words, looking at those parts of the U.S. West that had been part of the Spanish Empire and been part of Mexico, because I felt that that whole history had actually played a role in the way in which um, eugenics developed there and the fact that it was often so focused on uh, Mexican-Americans, so many Mexican-Americans were sterilized, and and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. So I wrote a dissertation that compared um, eugenics in the U.S. and Mexico, and much of that kind of driving questions were how was it that in Mexico – Ideas of eugenics could be used to support the idea of a cosmic race or, you know, celebrate the mestizo as this racial amalgam, whereas in the U.S., this, you know, s- similar types of ideas, not the exact same ingredients, but similar kinds of ingredients um, were used to support much more ideologies of racial purity, immigration restriction, um, and, you know, what we call along more the lines of kind of negative eugenics. Right. Um, So that's how that unfolded, and then I decided um, after writing that dissertation and publishing bits and pieces of it that I really felt that the California story needed to be told in greater depth, and it really, the history of eugenics in the U.S. West, and particularly California, which was such a formidable place for that history, hadn't, really been, you know, given the treatment that it that it deserved, and not many people had, you know, looked at, um, you know, the archives and connected them uh, with sources in the East Coast and the Midwest and so on. So I decided to focus on that for my first book, Eugenic Nation. So that's kind of how that book unfolded, and mm-hmm. if we have time later in the conversation, I actually have a second edition of that book coming out at the end of this year for the 10th uh the decade anniversary where I incorporate a new chapter that utilizes some new sources that I found. Oh
0: excellent. We'd love
1: to hear yeah, about that. Yeah. Great. So I um finished that book and then, you know, there's it's interesting because being a historian, I feel that often we make decisions not completely dictated by chronology, but wanting to understand change over time. Um, you know, when I finished this, I part on one hand I wanted to look back and back into the 19th century and understand earlier ideas of heredity and also I was very interested in the ways in which emergent bacteriology and tropical medicine had influenced the kind of racial ideas that were connected to eugenics so for a while I was working on a project that looked at looked at US colonial medicine in in the Panama Canal and kind of US empire and that was really interesting, but um, I also felt pulled forward. In other words, to understand, well, what happened, um, you know, in the decades following the kind of height of the classic eugenics era? So what I say when, you know, we move from kind of eugenics with a capital E to, with, to eugenics with a lowercase e, which was really in the 60s and 70s. Um, so I became really interested in understanding, well, how has that all unfolded? And particularly as eugenics became, you know, let's say, um, shifted more into genetics, became more medicalized, genetics moved into the laboratory, human genetics became its own bona fide field. How did all of those um, different pieces of the puzzle kind of play out? And so it seemed to me that a really good place to look at that would be to look at the history of genetic counseling, which was born – you know, in on um, the kind of in, you know, sprouted out of the soil, so to speak, of the eugenics movement, and then took a variety of different trajectories um, forward. And by the time we got to the 70s and 80s, was informed by bioethical ideas, although not completely unproblematically. Mm-hmm. So, you know, really it was tracing it forward, looking at that arc um, from a different perspective and also through a profession that really hadn't received enough attention, it, in part because it's a young profession. I mean, it's now like about 50, 40, 50 years old. Um, and because, it, you know, one of the things was, well, how do I, where do I go in the archives to tell this story? So that's how Telling Genes came about. What was it? was it? And I, you know, also to understand the complex interplay of eugenics and genetics and those blurry lines between the two. How do you draw them? Where do you find them? What role do genetic counselors themselves play in, in drawing them and rearticulating them, and um, how did that field get to where it is today, given its you know baggage, its past baggage, and all of the pressures it faces? You know, as a kind of very unique type of health care professional and provider. Mm-hmm.
0: And it's it's that phrase, right? The the idea of genetic counselors being healthcare professionals and providers that I think is one of the more, you know, interesting angles that you take up in this because really in a way, I mean, as medical genetics, as you kind of show throughout the book, medical genetics itself was really only being formulated as such as, as you would say, lowercase e eugenics in the mid 1950s. And around this time, physicians were still really unsure about what to do with genetic information in these sort of family studies. So then for this kind of new profession to begin to crystallize was seen in a way, and by some figures that you um, detail, was seen as a threat to medical authority. So how how did this exactly play out?
1: Well, that's one of the really interesting parts of the story is how... You know, genetic counseling, the term itself is coined by Sheldon Reed um, in 1947, and he's based at the Dite Institute at the University of Minnesota. And he is really um, emblematic of many of the early practitioners of genetic counseling who, for the most part, were um, male-trained PhDs in zoology or biology, usually small mammals, insects, things like that who had decided that they wanted to extrapolate from, you know, small organisms, patterns of inheritance to looking at humans and to begin to understand the social implications of that. So these were the practitioners, um, you know, in the 40s and in the 50s as human genetics becomes more um, medicalized, more professionalized, you do get more MDs entering the profession, and you get people, for example, like James Neal, who is an Mm MD-PhD. You know, and he's concerned about some of these PhDs who are, you know, playing doctor, let's say, a little bit too much. So there's you're already beginning to see some of those professional turf wars then between the MDs and the PhDs. Um, But they share enough, uh, let's say, of a similar culture and similar space and kind of in the academic world. And plus, no one's paying much attention to what these geneticists are doing anyway that there's not that much to fight over, let's say. The stakes aren't that high. Mm-hmm. But things then do begin to shift, um, in the 60s and 70s for a whole variety of reasons. And that's when you get what I would, is a pretty dramatic, um, professional tra- transformation in the profile of, of genetic counseling and who genetic counselors are. So really in the space of a decade, you go from you know primarily these male PhDs and some MDs working either at specialty heredity clinics or maybe in particular types of pediatric or a neurology clinic who specialize in genetics who are doing what Reed w- would have defined as genetic counseling. So that's up until, let's say, the early to mid 60s. Well, 10 years later, by the mid 70s, the vast majority of genetic counselors are women and increasingly women who have been trained in these master's, these two year long master's degree programs. So you get this very accelerated feminization of the field, and also the professionalization. And that, you know, a master's degree in genetic counseling, is it's, it's a professional degree. It's like a professional school. Um, so that, in and of itself, just in the history of medical professions and health professions, to me, still remains fascinating, you know, how that unfolded, what the pathways to, to that were. Then you overlay the gender dimension. hmm onto that and that obviously compounded the issues around authority that you were already seeing bubbling up in some of the turf wars in the forties, fifties with the MD PhDs. So I'll tell you a few stories about that to kind of understand how that played out. So the founder of the first program in genetic counseling was Melissa Richter at Sarah Lawrence College, and she was a very interesting, forward-looking person who realized in the mid to late '60s that there were a lot of women who maybe had um, had bachelor's degrees who had gone off and raised children, or for some reason or another wanted to come back into the professional realm. They wanted careers that would be interesting um engaging you know but not um exceedingly demanding and time consuming like being for example an md would be um so she started mapping out these careers for um for women in the in the right there in the late '60s at Sarah Lawrence, and she was doing it through the extension school. So really, the idea was women who were going to come back and enter the work uh, the workforce. You know, women who had some maturity to them and, and maybe had raised kids or had a family, but who wanted to work part time or full time. And she devised three different plans, and one was a certain uh, kind of um, one was a psychology degree. One was a health communications degree, and the third option she came up with was genetic counseling. And um, she became more and more intrigued with the genetic counseling because I think she was aware that um, amniocentesis was on the horizon, that new forms of prenatal testing were emerging, and also that the possibility of using those and and being able to act on them legally with the decriminalization of abortion, all of that was on the horizon, and she was interested in that. Um, so what did she do? Well, she started to send, she didn't, none of these people out there in genetics had any inkling of who she was. She was complete unknown Mm -hmm. to them, but nonetheless, she sent letters to, you know, probably about 200 different people, all the big geneticists out there, you know, from across the country. And she said, you know. Um, you know, this is who I am. I'm thinking of starting this program. It would be a master's degree program. It would have these courses. It would have, you know, a a training, a a field component, a clinical rotation type component. What do you think of my idea? And I would say about 80% of the responses were all negative. They were, you know, this is a horrible idea. No one's going to get enough training. Who do you think you are to even suggest this? Uh, this is better left in the hands of doctors and MDs. Um, there, so, and then there were about 20% who said, you know, either this is pretty interesting. I'd like to talk to you more about it. Or I actually, I think this is a really good idea. We're going to need, you know, uh, this is a profession that could be really valuable, you know, over the, the coming decades. But what I found striking about her is despite the fact that she got so many negative responses, she just continued along quite cheerfully, as far as I can tell from the records, with her plan. And she wrote back letters to these people saying, well, thank you so much for your thoughtful comments. You know, I'm going to proceed with my plan. So that is interesting. You know, it took a certain kind of person to not really be, you know, to have – whatever combination of optimism, arrogance, denial, you know, to, to move ahead, but she moved ahead with, um, with the plans. Now you can also see the kinds of issues that you find, you know, by looking closely at all of this correspondence that she, in in her records from the late sixties and, and early seventies, you can also see that at, in the American society of human genetics meetings and, mm-hmm. Part of what I did in the book Telling Genes, it was very important to me uh, to have the stories of genetic counselors and key players be integral to the story and in a way be kind of the chorus that was pushing the narrative along Um, because this is a young field and it's very much of a living, a field with a a living history. And there are a lot of people with a lot of really interesting experiences and knowledge to share, um, you know, about how genetic counseling in its, you know, kind of Uh, current form came into being. So um, some of the more interesting conversations I had with people I interviewed related to meetings in the early 1970s at the American Society for Human Genetics where you had this kind of pushback. It was pushback often from the MDs to some extent by the PhDs who'd been doing genetic counseling, but really both of them against this idea of a master's degree program. And there was definitely a gender dynamic to it where, you know, one could, from our vantage point, it seems really sexist, the way in which, you know, oh, these girls will never know, you know, how to really pull this off, or they will be nothing more than, you know, clerks and, you know, maybe aides who figure out how to do a pedigree chart. So there was a lot of demeaning language. But mm-hmm. at the same time that that was going on, you know, Melissa Richter had continued forth with her program. Other programs had, sparred, had sprouted up. And the first cohorts from these programs were graduating. And it turned out that the geneticists, and especially those who had been interested in this idea of actually having people who could help them and, 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 you know, work with families, um, they had proven themselves really useful. So if you think back to that time of the early 70s, not only do you have, you know, kind of the emergence of prenatal testing, you also have some of the first larger scale um, genetic screening programs like sickle cell and Tay-Sachs. And so you have genetic counselors who are becoming integral parts of the teams that are rolling those out, and they're becoming, you know, in the words of of some of these geneticists and physicians, quite indispensable. Mm -hmm. So all those things are coming to a head in the early to mid-70s. And finally, in the end, the geneticists who had been holding the line and saying, no, you know, this is never going to work, they're never going to get sufficient training. We don't think this is a good idea. They, they relented. And so by the mid to late 70s, um, you had, let's say, a sometimes happy, somewhat a little bit tense coexistence between the American Society of Human Genetics and the emergence of what would become the National Society of Genetic Counselors. Um, over time, that relationship has become much more um, has become much more friendly and, you know, the boundaries between it are much clearer. But anyway, that, that whole issue of looking at the um, kind of the pathways to professionalization, the kinds of professional and gendered skirmishes that were going on um, and how that played out and, you know, what is the kind of chain of command of um, medicine. And at a time when geneticists still in, the you know, that period you know, had nowhere the visibility, you know, and the kind of power of authority that, that it has today or it had by the 1990s. Mm-hmm. So it's a very interesting period where a lot of these things are in formation and a lot of people are trying to draw, you know, the lines um, professionally and in terms of, let's say, you know, from a science studies perspective in terms of expertise, you know, who has what types of expertise, where is that going to sit, and how could that fit within kind of a changing um, – the changing, you know, clinical and medical domains.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it always it always seems very up in the air for a long time. I mean, even in the in the nineteen seventies when you begin to have Victor McCusick holding his courses at Bar Harbor, Maine, which are designed to evangelize various kinds of professionals. Right. Basically he's working with physicians, he's working mm-hmm. with, um, or he's working with, uh, specialists who, you know, might have knowledge of other organisms to contribute and trying to organize a mapping effort. So in that, so even that side of the field is kind of forming its own identity. And do you ever see um, do you ever see any kind of genetic counseling work interacting directly with some of this new research on mapping? Because what you, what you just elucidated about the kind of growing need for better research infrastructure, making genetic counselors seem more attractive to the physicians who, you know, had the jobs and ran the centers. Do you see them begin to kind of make their own, um, I guess make their own place within the existing structures?
1: To some extent, they do. So I'm thinking of a really interesting um, uh, woman, a uh, Ph.D. named Marion Revis, who was trained at Indiana at a time in the late 60s, early 70s, when a lot of kind of, you know, um, linkage work like, you know, genetic family linkage work was going on. And she was very involved in that and very good at that and um when she but then then i guess she went to i don't remember the exact details but she went to rutgers and was teaching there i think within the genetics um, unit of the biology department. And somehow she got pulled into running um, the, this genetic counseling program, which was a really great program that was only around for about 10 years because they decided they didn't want to pay for it by around, you know, 1980 at Rutgers. Um, but what you find in her case is that for her, it was really she had to choose between one or the other. There wasn't an ability to integrate them so that she had to give up. In fact, she ended up moving to Oregon where she was one of the first people working in computational genetics around family linkage Mm -hmm. in the 80s and into the 90s. Um, But when she was doing setting up the genetic counseling program at Rutgers first, I think it was just so much work setting up the program. And, you know, the enormous amount of hours that people had to put into setting up rotations, you know, where are these students going to rotate, where are they going to learn, who's going to accept them, you know, because it's very labor-intensive, um, you know, to go for a semester in the second year of training. And then just the intensity of getting the program up on the ground and, and te- off the ground and, and teaching some of the core courses herself. So I think that that type of actually... I think there are instances where some genetic counselors end up working with a team where they are playing that kind of role and they're into the more nitty-gritty of what's going on in genetic research. And that happens, you know, one of the people I interviewed worked at what was Oakland Children's Hospital where there was a lot of interesting work going on with pediatric um, genetics. And so, you know, a few of the genetic counselors there ended up playing a part um, in things that you know, aspects of that that were more research-oriented. But that's been kind of one of the issues in genetic counseling is that because it's been more of a, you know, to some extent, it's a, it's a science, um, informatics, helping profession with a clinical knowledge component. Um, but, you know, where is the research in it? And is that one of the reasons why genetic counselors, you know, aren't higher up on the totem pole because they are often not participating. I mean, some are, some have, you know, I, Michigan, I have colleagues who are involved in the reveal study or, you know, studies related to looking for genetic bases for Alzheimer's, comic, and chronic diseases. So that does happen more, but, um, but that, that is one of the questions genetic counselors grapple with as well. Should we start a PhD program, um, you know, that has more of a research component, you know, mm-hmm. Do we need that more, you know, for the authority of the field? Do we need it to be able to provide better care to our patients so we have better outcomes, that type of thing? And so that those, there are a few of those, but not many, because again, to do that, then you have to get institutional buy-in, you have to get accreditation, you know, all those hoops must, you must jump through all those hoops. But yeah, I think the research areas, that's like a question, one of the questions that hangs over gen- the future of genetic counseling and mm. particularly what kind of expertise do genetic counselors have and what role do they play on, you know, in, in multidisciplinary teams working around genetic diseases or sp- studies and uh, and so on.
0: Right. and And when you were talking about kind of how genetics and human genetics as a discipline didn't really have its kind of stable or didn't have the same stable institutional footing in the seventies and eighties as it did in the nineties with the onset of the human genome project. I just always find it fascinating because to the public, the image of you know, the human genome and actually all the work that's going into sequencing that is always kind of directed towards you know therapeutics and knowledge of, you know, the actual uh, potentialities for different diseases and kinds of risk, right? And so mm-hmm. in a way, I wonder is it, you know, which direction is the influence really? Is it that, you know, these large research infrastructures like the Human Genome Project kind of create more legitimacy for the image of the genetic counselor? Or is it that the genetic counselor actually laid or established the conditions for the possibility of the public imagining uh, the Human Genome Project as something, you know, of personal consequence? Mm-hmm.
1: That's an interesting latter point in particular because I hadn't really thought about the ways in which they might have been setting the parameters for the legibility and kind of the greater acceptance. I mean, overall, but the Human Genome Project in particular. But I think that both of those those things are going on, um, and that a lot of what genetic counselors do is they they translate. And they interpret interpret and they convey information um, between kind of, you know, science and, um, you know, clinical work or research or even what's been published, which would be hard for, you know, a a lay person and even many people with a bachelor's or master's degree to understand because the language is so technical, you know, to patients, you know, people coming in for consults and things like that one of the things though that has been always really striking to me though about genetic counselors which i think makes them very unique is that there's a lot of genetic information out there as we know but very little can actually be done with it mm-hmm. when it comes to therapeutic applications you know finding cures or finding ways to 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 mitigate things i mean if you know so you think about um you know, Huntington's disease would be, you know, kind of a clear-cut example of that, you know, where we know, you know, the test exists, we know, you know, they, the scientists know, have known for quite some time, you know, where the gene for that is, how many nucleotide repeats, et et cetera, et cetera, but, you know, that information is, what can you do with that information clinically now? people will often sometimes want to know and sometimes don't want to have the results of those tests um, to help them kind of chart their futures or to think about issues around reproduction and family. But genetic counselors, you know, kind of they have to manage what I've called this like therapeutic gap or this therapeutic chasm where this information is not translating into clinical therapies but it's sitting there often just producing anxiety, mm-hmm. you know, churning out these, you know, probabilities or risk calculations that people will read differently and no one is ever quite sure exactly what to do with them. And so it's very, there's a lot of anxiety around this. And I think that, um, one of the things I admire about gen- many of the genetic counselors I've met is how the tools they have from family, you know, family psychology and, You know, whether it's cognitive behavioral psychology, more psychoanalytic approaches to really figure, you know, to help people manage um, that anxiety, to cope, to make decisions, to, you know, figure out what to do with the information that they usually have sought out, but sometimes just receive. So that's really unique in, I mean, I don't know, maybe you can think of other as, you know, other um, kind of healthcare providers, let's say, but, you know, I compare them to you know, nurses, for example, or e- even, you know, social workers, which they are some similarities to, you know, clinical social workers, where really it's about problem, you know, problem solving. Like we're going to provide clinical care at the bedside and, you know, we're going to, you know, whatever, replace this, you know, IV fluid. We're going to, you know, figure out what the best arrangement is for this person when they go into rehab. But, you know, when you're talking about a genetic counselor, you're talking about, you know, in a way, what is often very abstracted information, but then, you know, on the other hand, is can be connected to ever so real, you know, the ever so real and sometimes debilitating uh, impacts of, of, you know, genetically uh, connected diseases. So um, that's something I still think a lot about. You know, what does that mean, and what when you? when genetic counselors sign up for that profession, you know, do they really think much about that and and, and how they're going to spend a lot of time managing that, and that's a very it's a big, from my perspective it seems like a pretty heavy existential kind of burden to to, to carry
0: Yeah, absolutely, and it's I mean, I like your framing of that as kind of mitigating, uh, gaps and anxieties. And it really does kind of, uh, describe the role of the genetic counselor as being a bit different than, uh, say the bioethicist who's mainly concerned about, uh, courses of best action and beneficence. And you actually deal with the ethical dimensions of genetic counseling as they meet with the kind of formalization of um, Western bioethics as a, as its own profession in one of the later chapters in the book. So maybe, uh, I don't know, I'd like to hear a bit more about that as well, because you have these two, I mean, so bioethicists are also becoming, uh, you know, their own kind of professional sub-discipline around the same time. So it's interesting because you have these two uh, roles that aren't necessarily making the decisions the locus of power isn't with them but they're always supposed to be you know providing solid advice so they're two different kinds of advisors but i was wondering if you could maybe expand a bit more on the connection between bioethicists and genetic counselors
1: Mm -hmm. well one of the things that i figured out as i was writing that chapter was that two loci of um you know, related really to this kind of early history of genetic counseling and bioethics were literally 20 miles away from each other and, you know, kind of near, you know, that right outside of New York City. And I don't know if uh, Hastings on Hudson is in Westchester County, but it's very nearby. So you have you know, the Sarah Lawrence, Sarah Lawrence College with its emergent program. And then you have, you know, the Hastings Center, which is not based there anymore, but it started there on the Hastings on Hudson right out, you know, kind of, I don't know how many miles up from New York City, but they were both coming out of this, you know, particular environment and there was some cross traffic between the two of them. Um, So early on, you know, and I write in the book about a very interesting bioethicist named Mark LaPay, who went on later to write about things related to um, nutrition and environmental justice and issues like that. But when he was at the Hastings Center when it first was founded, um, he was entrusted with developing, I think they had five different kind of components, five different areas, and the one that he worked on was, um, you know, ethics, genetic technologies, anything related to kind of the rise of new genetic technologies. What does it mean? What are we supposed to do with it? And what's so interesting is that many, he was actually asked to speak, and the students liked him a lot, at Sarah Lawrence. So I know he went there to speak to them, and they were in contact with him. So they were influencing each other in some way, shape, or form. But he was asking these questions. I mean, in a way, the bioethicists were working, you know, in this abstract world of um, developing principles, um, you know, are articulating precepts that could kind of guide, you know, good care and, and along the lines of what we know is kind of the canon of bioethics. And one of the things that he was doing along those lines was asking, you know, who is the genetic counselor responsible to? And the way he came down on that question was that if the genetic counselor is, if the genetic counselor is imagining her primary responsibility as to medicine, like to medical research, or to and or to the population, like the population writ large, there is a problem. If the genetic counselor is imagining her primary responsibility as belonging to the individual or to the patient in the context of his or her life and decision-making, that's okay. That's where things need to be. Um, Which really kind of resonates with the individual, often individualistic kind of nature of bioethics and the way it developed in the U.S. Genetic counselors, on the other hand, I think they were addressing similar types of questions, but they weren't, those weren't necessarily kind of the questions that were foremost on their radar screen. It wasn't what they were thinking about every single day or at, you know, the forefront of their training. Instead, they were often doing those things in practice. So they were working with, you know, patients or, you know, clients, depending on what you call them, and, and families kind of one or one or learning one-on-one or learning how to approach, let's say, um, you know, let's a, a genetic disease um, that was affecting a child within the context of the family, and you know that's where the two. You know, even though we don't think about them often together, the kind of vision that Marc Lapay had about the genetic counselor responsible to the individual and genetic counselors developing this idea of client-centered care, or you know, uh, you know, client-based care. Those really had; a, they were very much in sync with one another. And I would say that those two realms, you know, they they were closer together than they bifurcated. Um, but they, you know, have they've overlapped in different places and in different ways um, since then. I guess one of the things I wanted to bring out in those chapters was was to think about the ways in which genetic counseling programs were riding some of the same social currents that the emergence of bioethics was Mm -hmm. and some of the ways in which these really early deliberations of people thinking about genetic technologies were being influenced directly or indirectly by the kind of let's say um technical and knowledge communities that were emerging in genetic counseling programs themselves. But again, there's a pretty gender division of labor. I mean, it's mainly kind of male PhDs who are, you know, setting the terms and professionalizing bioethics in, you know, the U S and really, you know, around the world in the sixties and seventies. And then you have, you know, women who are running these programs, you know, uh, there are some male directors, but, you know, it's primarily 80% at least of those being trained are women. So, you know, there is a way in which you have kind of, you know, the brain work going on, you know, in the male domain and the kind of the people work um, going on in the female domain. And that's also interesting to think about that and how that impacted the ways in which these, you know, two different domains were and were not connected to one another.
0: Yeah, that's really fascinating. And so even going off this, um, so <laughs> kind of looking backward in your book, since ethics is toward the end, I mean, the previous chapter is sort of all about the role of woman. You kind of, you organize everything thematically, which I think is uh, very nice for people who are coming into this book with different interests. But so... It's, it's weird though. It's, I mean, as a historian, it's hard for you to say anything that's, you know, prescriptive or normative about this divide. But, you know, there is a way in which, uh, as you describe, uh, the kind of, the feminization of uh, genetic counseling made it a really, really important place for, um, you know, women to enter the uh, scientific or clinical workplace in ways that were important to them. But there's always this kind of issue of them being relegated to a kind of secondary status, like you've just, like you've just demonstrated, right? Uh, the bioethicists will outline general principles and do all the research. And then the uh, genetic counselors will sort of just work to um, apply that and do the emotional work. And I, uh, for me, it seems like, you know, this is a This is a gap that's kind of difficult to breach, and I was wondering if you had any kind of deeper thoughts about that
1: that's a very that's a tough question about breaching um, or kind of dealing with that gap. I would say that you know now again looking back, we can see those distinctions in hindsight. If we right. look at you know over the past I mean, I think things have become more um, fluid over the past 10 or 20 years as genetic counseling has c- continued forward, and as genetic counselors have assumed more of their own professional autonomy and authority and are you know, I know, for example, that one of the genetic counselors here at my institution um, you know, has served on, and they often serve on the hospital ethics board, right? So I think that they, as they have gained more authority, they played more and more of those roles, and often, you know, the, their experiential knowledge can be seen as quite valuable. I mm-hmm. think that was less so, you know, back then, especially in the early years when, you know, there was more, you know, sexism in... Um, in those domains, not that that's completely gone away, but um, I think that one of the things that's really important, and this is one of the reasons I wrote the book, was especially if you look at the new generations of students che- checking and they're starting off with genetic counseling training programs, they often don't know that their field has this whole history and carries all of this baggage and. The baggage is, well, from a historian's perspective, really, really interesting. And it also weighs down the profession or sets the, you know, let's say, constrains in some way. It it informs and constrains the profession in ways that it's helpful to be aware of, well, how did we get to where we are? You see what I mean? And I think that having that awareness... From the genetic counselors I've talked to who are ent- actually interested in that, who might be a very self selected group, think that having this awareness is enormously beneficial. Mm-hmm. Because if they can understand, for example, why it is that pe- many people's stereotypes of genetic counselors are well, genetic counselors are basically, you know, somehow connected or directly connected to eugenics of some sort. They are, you know, pushing abortions on people to terminate pregnancies. You know, these different types of stereotypes that, you know, you can trace through, you know, you can understand where those have come from by looking at these historical trajectories and see um, – you know, and, and, and see how they've evolved and, and why they continue to resonate. So I would say for this type of question, you know, if you want to, that it's been a you know, similar thing with thinking about the whole racial dynamics of genetic counseling. Mm-hmm. So genetic counseling is a field that has a problem, you know, has a few problems. One of the problems is that, you know, it is, you know, about 90%, maybe up to 95%, you know, European American or, or white, there's not a lot of racial and ethnic diversity, and that's an issue. People certainly, you know, well-intentioned uh, genetic counselors can learn cultural competencies, can understand things about racial and ethnic health disparities, and many are doing so and are very committed to doing so. But it raises a really interesting question of, you know, we know that one of the ways in which disparities can be addressed in which we can get more equity, you know, in healthcare, is to have, you know, people who are representative of, you know, providing the care who are representative of the people receiving the care. So, how do you like, and that's a really intractable question. Why, how did genetic counseling get that way? And if it's important to change it, how can it become more diverse? What are some kind of models for achieving that greater diversity? And not just for some PC equation, but because really it is integral to. You know, the viability, uh, the success of the field and also to, cl- you know, client and patient outcomes and the complexity of this therapeutic chasm, which is not is going to be different, you know, a- according to different cultures, you know, different backgrounds, different right family arrangements and things like that.
0: In order to have truly patient or client-centered care, you have to respect the, you know, kind of background and particular situations of these clients and patients rather than kind of forcing them into some kind of, you know, neutral calculus of professional identities, right? You want to actually build those connections, and that's a very important piece of any kind of therapeutic relation.
1: Exactly. So that's, so that's again where, you know, I guess having the, you know, some of this historical awareness and some of those tools to, to try to understand, okay, well, you know, how have things, you know, developed over time? And if we want to track a new path, what are some, you know, uh, um, attempts we might make? And I think that the program genetic counseling has um, become more, has become broader and more um, kind of accepting and grown vis-a-vis issues around disability. Mm-hmm. So you've seen, you know, I start off the book talking about the program at Brandeis, which is a program that kind of put what we would now call like, you know, disability studies or a disability equality perspective um, at its core. And other programs like the new newer program at Stanford are also seeking to do that. So that's a place in which there's been... I would say, you know, because of ongoing discussions with the disability community, and really an attempt to address, okay, well, what are the tough issues that sit at something like prenatal testing, and what are the assumptions behind that, and how do we, you know, um, provide that to differently able communities? I think there's been definitely some shifts, some pretty pronounced shifts there. There have been less pronounced shifts, although certainly many programs have tried. Around issues of kind of ethnic and racial diversity, so that, that's I think a huge issue for the 21st century it's a huge issue, given the demographic trans transition in this country that we're undergoing right now and um, so you know I'm, I want to be you know hopeful about where I think the field you know could go in terms of those things, but I think it would be you know it would be unrealistic not to say that it's going to be challenging. Mm-hmm.
0: And so you've actually just very kind of cleanly addressed some of the yeah some of the other uh, chapters thematically that the book goes through. And I wanted to actually turn uh, our attention to the last chapter, which is about prenatal diagnosis. So to kind of in a way to answer my earlier kind of difficult question about breaching this chasm uh, earlier. The thing with, um, you know, these new diagnostic technologies is that the knowledge and practice of genetic counselors in a way serves to kind of humanize and make those technologies useful and meaningful. And that's one domain in which they sort of, you know, have are able to exercise professional autonomy and sort of knowledge of the subtleties of different tests. Right. Because mm-hmm. you can you use tests to basically settle on an identity Right, but at what point is there, you know, a threshold of meaning and the value of data? Right. And it's up to a certain kind of specialist to really, one, be able to interpret what the potential signs might mean and then be able to calculate things from there, like risk and also understand the you know humanistic uniqueness, of the situation. So I was wondering if you could just go in, uh, go into a bit more depth for our listeners on the kind of legacy of different sorts of testing and how um, how genetic counselors have essentially kind of made those tests, the very integral technologies that most people. Through which most people directly are, through which most people really experience genetic knowledge today?
1: Well, definitely, you know, one of the reasons genetic counseling took off and I think could take off as a feminized field in the 1970s was because it fostered and coincided with the routinization and the expansion of amniocentesis, then cryonic villus sampling and later different types of screening, you know, alpha protein, you know, maternal serum, alpha protein testing, and the quad tests and all of that. So genetic counselors, you know, cr- help to create a, a domain, a space for those testing it's tests, a language in which that information could be delivered to clients, could be interpreted, and, and all of that. So that's one thing that definitely is core to understanding the, the rise of contemporary genetic counseling. And that really, that does shift the field as well from the genetic counselors that we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, you know, from the forties, fifties uh, and sixties when those options weren't around. So the rise of prenatal genetic testing, prenatal diagnostics is central to the, to the story. Um, And in the book, I trace that really about through the 1980s to understand, you know, the complex ways in which that played out and the ways in which genetic counselors were sitting at this fractious place where you, you know, there was support of reproductive rights and reproductive autonomy, you know, connected to the decriminalization of abortion, connected to new understandings of, you know, patients and women's bodies, um, But, uh, you know, that, but at the same time, um, you know, there were issues around kind of assumptions around the worth of different lives and pregnancy termination, which connects to our early discussion of, you know, issues around disability. Mm -hmm. So there was this kind of mix of, you know, supporting prenatal testing was a rights agenda, an economic savings agenda, a eugenics agenda, a medical knowledge agenda. So all those things kind of were interconnected in interesting ways with one another and helped propel forward, um, you know, prenatal testing and and genetic counseling alongside it. One of the things that I found, and I found it really, I really enjoyed that writing that chapter and understanding um, how something like the Johns Hopkins prenatal diagnostic clinic was formed, who were the forces behind it. And you really see an interdisciplinary clinical model there, where you have, you know, um, you know, you have. You have folks in the laboratory, you have OBGYN, you have pediatrics, you have, you know, internal medicine, you also have the emergent genetic counselors, and you have all these people kind of coming in the genetics department, of course, coming together. And so that I found really interesting. And whenever you can find as a program as it's emerging and you can track it from, you know, on kind of one of those graphs from an, you know, N of zero, you know, to an N of, you know, 200,000, it's always really interesting. So that, to me is just a very interesting model of a fairly recent innovation in in, you know, prenatal care and, and reproductive care. But what we've seen more recently, and this is one of the things that I'm still trying to sort out, is, you know, that early model was one that was very much still connected to um federal funding agencies and kind of university universities and often like federal or publicly funded entities. So for example, amniocentesis, um, you know, the NICCHD or I can't remember, you know, the National Childhood Development, it's one of those hard acronyms from the NIH, <laughs> they funded this study in the 1970s to determine you know, the safety of amniocentesis and kind of the risks around it. And that's where you got the age 35 equals the risk of miscarriage and so on. But anyway, you know, who was involved in that? Well, about 12 different um, academic medical centers were providing the data, were doing, you know, the the double blind study, et cetera. So that's how that information was generated, and that's one of the things that legitimizes and makes amniocentesis okay and propels it forward. So that's kind of the domain in which initially these prenatal technologies are emerging. Now we fast forward to, you know, the early 2000s and really 2010 and beyond. And we have seen, you know, a dramatic shift of where those technologies sit moving from first and foremost from academic medical centers and federal funding agencies to, you know, biotech companies. And so there's been this, you know, it's, it's about commercialized genetics, what one of my colleagues calls big genoma. So you have a situation where genetic counselors for a long time had been, you know, they had been at the front lines of, um, uh, you know, of kind of, 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 of making accessible new prenatal testing technologies that might have been developed at their own institutions, or they at least were aware of them because they had been reading about them in their professional journals or in applicable clinical journals. Well, you know, in 2011, 2012, you know, literally genetic counselors began to receive in the mail, you know, from companies like Illumina, Illumina and Natera, these new non-invasive prenatal tests. That had been developed in the commercial domain. Maybe they had started off with, you know, some project that had NIH funding way back when, but it was developed as part of kind of biotech genetics. Hmm. They received these, you know, and basically have to come up with, you know, from outside, have to come up with what are the, talking about ethics and client-centered care, what are the appropriate protocols for using them?
0: Yeah, that's a very sneaky little way, it seems, to kind of circumvent the you know, system of approval of technologies and clinical trials is, you know, get it straight in the hands of people who aren't, you know, doctors and don't um, necessarily have to defer to the NIH and other, um, you know, the medical board, right? <laughs>
1: Well, exactly. So then, you know, they have to play catch up because they don't have, you know, kind of what would be the best practices of use for these technologies. Um, And the other thing is because these companies are very, you know, companies want to sell their products. So they're often they have very good advertisers. So they have very successful advertising campaigns, you know, usually directed towards mothers. So you will find this in women's magazines or on certain types of um, you know, television programming where there will be ads for you know. Don't you want to have the healthiest baby? Look, all you have to do is take this test. It just involves like a pin prick of your finger because it's testing fetal cells in maternal blood, etc. It's actually not a diagnostic test. It was kind of mis presented as such initially by these companies and then people push back and now it's understood more as a test or a screening technology that has to be further, you know, followed up with amnio or something more diagnostic. But in any case, the point there is that um, that, you know, that for the genetic counselors you know, uh, pregnant women would come in asking for these tests because they had learned about them. I mean, they were learning about them at the same time as some of the genetic counselors were. Mm -hmm. And you also have professional organizations, you know, like the, um, you know, the American College of um, Human Genetics and Genomics, you know, having to respond to this. So you have this flurry of activity in 2012 and 2013 where, you know, uh, ACOG and um, the Professional Genetics Association are basically coming up with what are recommendations and, you know, kind of um, standards of practice for when should these be used? Should they be used for women under 35, for women over 35? How reliable are they? Are they reliable for just for trisomy 21? Are they reliable for trisomy 13, 18, translocations, things like that? Um, So that, to me, is something that is really shaken things up, and that's the route in which more you know genetic tests they're coming down the commercialized pike. Um, you know some of them may incubate in kind of academic research uh, medical research centers and so on, but they're really you know when they come packaged and ready to go they're coming you know through the bi- the biotech commercialized you know they're coming through that stream mm-hmm. and so that has made things um, that has shifted. Some of the, even the terrain in which I was thinking about the history of genetic counseling when I started, because back when I started, it was like, okay, how does this connect to eugenics? And I'm thinking about the state, and I'm thinking maybe about some different types of professional organizations in medicine. But I really wasn't thinking about um, commercialization. I wasn't thinking about private industry. I wasn't thinking about the bioethical um, challenges that that brings to, you know, what does that do? Like, if. You know, if the primary, um, you know, responsibility going back to La Pay is to the client or to the patient, how do you get to that, you know, given all of the noise and given all the bright and shiny advertising that's associated with these tests? Um, so in a way, a lot of the ethical issues are connected. I mean, they're always going to be, it's always important to not forget about the state and, you know, the way in which public entities can kind of do wrong or be misguided. But, you know, we kind of need new frameworks for thinking about, well, all this commercialized. Um, and a lot of that relates to thinking about citizen science and thinking Mm -hmm. about, you know, how people get information and how they can make decisions. But, you know, genetics is complex and hard to understand, so it adds another kind of layer on top of all that. So that's kind of where I, you know, I've been thinking about this this issue lately is thinking about commercialization without making it into some horrible bugaboo because, you know, companies can develop really great products that can help people, and it's not that, you know, I'm adamantly against that at all times. But, you know, what... What are what insidious types of things are going on when you have companies who want to expand their market share in things like prenatal tests, so that every woman will have a healthy, i.e., baby, i.e., a child without intellectual disabilities? Well, that's a huge issue that doesn't get talked about enough.
0: Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, actually, in the beginning of our discussion, you said that you had uh, you have a new uh, edition of your book. Um, your book is eugenic nation. And is this like some of the new content that you have in the chapter you've added at the end?
1: Well, there's a little bit, there's some of this discussion in the concluding chapter where I really try to make some more direct and pointed connections between the history of eugenics and the contemporary kind of landscape of human genomics. So I do talk some about prenatal testing in particular um, and also um, recent events in California. So in a way, it's kind of double-pronged. On the one hand, I talk about the commercialization effect. On the other hand, um, I connect some of the uh, the biggest um, newest kind of most substantive chapter that I've added to that book to um, I don't know if you're aware, but about two years ago um, an expose was published um, that this one reporter worked on the story for a year um, alleging that about 150 women in two California prisons had, Received unauthorized tubal ligations, and um, that story unfolded and was taken up by the California State Legislature, which requested an audit. And the an audit indeed showed that 144 women, most of them first time offenders, most of them women of color, um, had been um, sterilized without pro- proper authorization, and many of them without any. In, Proper informed consent process, and some, according to what they've told reporters and and, and others, um, you know, forcibly. So we could call them coercive sterilizations. The most important point was that the sterilizations had occurred. I mean. In federal prisons, sterilizations cannot occur. It's against the law because you have a vulnerable population. So it makes a playing field where it would be seen as impossible to have anything, connect, you know, connected to a consent process, and it would could be or close to cruel and unusual punishment. Mm-hmm. In state prisons, states can make up kind of their own determinations um, about that. And in California, you know, there was this complex and multi-layered process to. Uh, Perform a sterilization. And in California, that process was not followed in these two prisons, in the case of about 150 women. And, and there were other, you know, very unsavory aspects of. Um, of, of these operations that were carried out between 2006 and 2010. So really recently. So I was grappling with that and how to fit the history of eugenic sterilization, which I take up in Eugenic Nation, um, you know, how to connect the dots between, you know, kind of these various episodes of um, of sterilization abuse, we could call it, or misuse of sterilization in California over the past 100 years. So the new book takes up, you know, both the commercialization and also looks very pointedly at something that could not be, you know, a a greater example of a kind of coercive state than a prison system, right? Right. So I'm looking at those different, two different sides. Um, And then the new chapter draws upon this resource that I've been working with, which is um, I found about five years ago, 19 microfilm reels that have um, on them documents related to 18,000 sterilizations performed in California so are sterilization recommendation forms supplemental forms index cards letters etc and working with a team here at the school of public health uh, at University of Michigan um, we created a we worked with the data capture system and we uh, kind of coded all of the you know coded the forms and created 212 variables and so we've created this massive database that we're using to understand patterns in uh, sterilization over uh, from the nineteen twenties to the nineteen fifties, so over about a, a 35-year period. And um, so in that project which is point has both quantitative analysis and qualitative analysis. We're beginning to find some really interesting things. You know, first and foremost, that Spanish surnamed patients were disproportionately sterilized vis a vis the overall California state census and vis-a-vis their institutional populations. Also that young people were sterilized at really high rates. I mean, people under 18, um, you know, so young Mexican American women in you know, in, uh, several institutions were always the most likely to be sterilized and that there also was a pretty active um, environment of or or examples of resistance against sterilization so we found uh patient uh, appeal letters objecting to sterilization we found um numerous cases of parents objecting to the sterilization of their children especially mexican-american parents and african-american parents so you have kind of families of color pushing back against um the sterilization system. So those are some of the things we're finding out. And then just, you know, many, many stories of people. How did they end up in the institution? Um, How were they classified, you know, based on what rationale were they sterilized? Um, And sometimes we know very little about them. We only know their age and their sending county and their diagnosis. And in other cases, you know, we have a four-page letter attached to their case, and we can learn an enormous amount about them and where they were born, and how they ended up there, and if they were if they were sterilized, who they would be released to, um, and so on. So that's the resource that I've been using for this new um, this new history. You know, which I view as, in the grand scheme of looking at California, I can kind of connect the dots between that history and these issues of commercialization. Mm-hmm. But this more recent work is really going back and digging in deep on a more granular level to. Uh, understand um, eugenic sterilization uh, with a very unique set of historical resources. So that's what that's about.
0: Yeah. Wow. That sounds really fascinating. I look forward to that coming out. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, so I think we're uh, just about out of time, but I also wanted to thank you so much again for uh, sharing your knowledge with us today. And I really enjoyed our conversation and I hope that uh, I think, well, I'm I'm sure that our listeners will as well. So thank you all as well who have been listening. And uh, this has been New Books in Medicine. Thanks. Thanks for tuning into this interview. The first of a duo of pieces on genetic counseling.